Just a reminder, we've got a brand new podcast to listen to, a new 30-minute sermon every weekday. Please look up and subscribe to the Daily Sermon Podcast. Here's a short clip from Episode 1, which is titled, A New Start for a New Year. If God loves you and you have misplaced priorities, then don't be shocked if God sends someone to tell you that you need to do something different. Don't be shocked if you come across His Word and something convicts you. Don't be shocked if in your prayer life you understand that maybe God would have me do something differently than that which I am doing. If God loves you, He won't let you settle for some of the things you're settling for. Now, He probably will be very patient. In my own experience, that's been the case. Really patient God. But He will be consistent. He will ring your bell on stuff that you need to do differently. In those moments, don't clam up your ears, but respond. That's what the apostle meant in verse 13 when he said, I've reached forward to the things which are ahead. Notice he says, I don't have to guess what's ahead. The stuff God wants you to do, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out. You don't need 10 theology degrees to know you should spend more time in prayer and scripture and church, right? You don't need a bunch of degrees to know that. What you have to have is a will to do it. This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and fpcgulfport on YouTube. A number of years ago, when I was around nine, I had a nightmare, as kids do. And I woke up, and it was dark, and I was alone. I remember that I sat bolt upright, and I looked around the room, and I was all by myself. And at that moment, there was two things I wanted. Now, number one was if someone would come along and turn the light on. That would have been just grand. The second thing is I would have preferred my greatest enemy in grade school to walk in as long as I was not alone. Now, at that moment... I remembered something that a Sunday school teacher had taught me. The Sunday school teacher had said that God is always with us. Now, I had grown up to understand that he's in heaven, yes, that God is in heaven, but the Sunday school teacher had said at the same time as he's there, he's also here. That even as a child is shaking and terrified in a bedroom all by himself, that God is present even in these circumstances. And so I remember at this time calling out, calling out through prayer and praying that God would comfort me, that he would slay the beasts that I was sure were gathered around the bed, that he would protect me from evil, whether it was real or imaginary. I prayed that God would be there, just as a Sunday school teacher had said that he would be. These prayers, again, were based on this idea that God could be in heaven and in my bedroom, that he is an ever-present help in times of trouble. Now, at that moment... Everything resolved itself just fine, if you're wondering. I did make it to the morning. As I look back and remember this moment, I was happy in that moment to consider a doctrine that I couldn't even pronounce at that time. The idea that God's omnipresent, that he is everywhere. I didn't have the doctrine or the attribute named, but I knew it through this experience. Now, does everyone want an omnipresent God? I did at that one time. I wanted God to be right there with his sword out protecting me. So there's times when we want it, but is that true of all of us all the time? Do we always want God to be everywhere equally in all places? Is this something we desire? Well, for some, the answer is no. You know, it's no secret that when the pagans cooked up gods and when they took a log and whittled a god out of it and then bowed down to what they'd whittled, it's no surprise that they never assigned to that log or to that idol the attribute of omnipresence. Do you know why? Because people don't want or don't like the idea that he's always watching, that he's always there. Remember the pagans, they would make deities, but they'd be these localized deities who had this jurisdiction, and you could stray from that jurisdiction and escape that deity's eyes. 
And that's the way the pagans liked it. They liked a deity that they could come to on their terms and they'd light fires and smoke signals and the like and get his attention. They didn't like the idea that he was always there. They was always watching because that conflicted with their sense of guilt. Now, as Christians, I hope that we wouldn't want it any other way than this, that God's always there. If you go back to the Old Testament, think of all the heroes of the Old Testament. Well, one thing you realize is that they really appreciated the fact that God was always on his throne and at the same time was always on their side. King David is one of the more obvious examples of this. King David had a lot of enemies. You know, you flip every page in Samuel and Kings and you look to the story of David, and what you see is a guy who was hounded on all sides by Philistines and people outside the gates and enemies within the gates and within his own family. Now, David, I'll digress here for a moment, David was no slouch. This is the guy who fought lions barehanded and took them down. He used slingshots to take down Goliath. He was no slouch. This was a warrior. This was a manly man. You know, Chuck Norris. He would eat Chuck Norris for breakfast. This was a manly, manly man. He had strength. He had power. He had clout. And he had a track record. I mean, if you're the guy who took down Goliath, that goes with you the rest of your days. People say, that guy, that guy, he did that. So he was strong and powerful. And he had reason to be confident in his own abilities because of some of the things he had done. And yet, do you know the most famous passages ever ascribed to David? It's Psalm 23, the shepherd, shepherd psalm. What does that say? Well, I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read the salient part. It says this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me and the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, yea, though even I, King David, even I, this powerful man, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you, you are with me. You are present. Even if I, David, were to walk right down the valley of the shadow of death with enemies at every side with bows and spears ready to take me down. I can go right in the midst of that if directed by you and I will fear no evil. Why? Because I'm strong enough? Because I took down Goliath? No, because I know you're there. You are with me. The attribute that David cites in the shepherd's psalm as giving him the most comfort when he's facing some danger is the fact that God, Emmanuel, is with him. It didn't matter if he was facing armies or shadows in the dark. God was with him, and he's with us as well. All right, let's return to our passage. Let's work our way through the bounds. We'll start with verses 7 through 10 and just continue forward from there. All right, verse 7. We're going to start with this hypothetical question. Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? In other words, where can I go and depart and get away from you if I needed to or wanted to? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I were to ascend into heaven, you're there. If I were to make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, if I was to dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. You know, back in uh, 2007-ish, 
I was doing an internship at a small church in South Colorado Springs. And there were some people who had been in this church for a long time. There was one older lady in particular who had been in the church a long time. And of course, I'm just an intern. I'm just starting in seminary and the like. And I talked and even crossed swords with this lady on a few different occasions. She had strong, dogmatic opinions. And those who argued with her did so at their own risk. With that said, there was a doctrine come up in one of my Sunday school classes, and it was the doctrine of omnipresence. And I could tell that she had some consternation about what we were talking about, and so we talked a little bit after the service. And so I asked her, I said, all right, help me understand where you're at. Do you believe that God is everywhere? And she looked at me and she said, absolutely. And I said, all right, let me ask an extension of that question. Do you believe that God is, is he in hell? And she looked at me and she said, absolutely not. And I saw we had a problem. Now her challenge in that moment was that she had this idea that God would never be in hell. He can't be in hell. That's not where God is. That's where the devil is. She looked at me like, silly, you know, that's where the devil is. God can't be there. And I told her, I said, all right, well, let's get back to this idea of God's omnipresence. You know, all present, present everywhere, equally all at once. I said, so if there is a place, if it's hell, if it's the ocean, if the mountains, if it's outer space, whatever, that God isn't there, can he really be omnipresent? If there's a place, even hell, where God isn't manifest in some real and substantive way, can we actually say that he's omnipresent, he's all present? And furthermore, the doctrine's not called partial presence, it's called omnipresence, is what I said. I don't know if that endeared me or not. But I never got around to Psalm 139. If I had, I would have pointed to this verse. In Psalm 139, the passage we've just read in verse 8, it says that God is everywhere. He's equally present in heaven and in hell. The difference is the way his attributes are manifested. If you meet God in heaven, you will meet him in his love and his grace and his kindness and his mercy and his forbearance and all these different things. If you were to meet God in hell, you will meet him in his wrath. That is the attribute that's manifested in this place. With that said, in Psalm 139, we see he is equally present in both places, whether we know that, understand it, or like it or not. It says, if I sin into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there as well. With that said, in verses 7 through 10, the psalmist asks the rhetorical question. He says, look, where can I go? Where can I go to flee from God's presence? But then he answers his own question and says, nowhere. There's nowhere I can go. There's nowhere I can go that God does not exist. Whether it's heaven or hell or the mountains or the depths of the sea, there's no place in all of creation that you can travel or be sent to or consigned to where you will escape the presence of the Creator himself. Now before we look at verses 11 through 12, let me add a couple of theological terms, you know, $8 terms to help us understand this stuff a little bit better. Have you ever heard the words uh, transcendence and eminence? Now when we say God transcends us, we're saying the obvious. He's bigger than us. He's external to us. He's above us. He's higher than us. God's transcendence is this idea that God is outside of creation. The creator looks down at creation. He's external to creation. He's not part of it in the sense that his nature relies on creation's nature in order for him to exist. He exists just fine apart from the created realm. That's transcendence. Well, at the same time as we say he is above creation, we also say he fills creation. And that's his eminence. God fills creation. He fills everything. If you were to look to the left side of the room, guess what? God's there. 
Now, if we were to look to the right side of the room, guess what? God is there. If we were to look out the windows, out to the tree line, guess what? God is there. If tonight you get out your telescope, you look up to the stars and the moon and Orion's belt and all this stuff, and you look up, what are you going to see? Well, amongst all the celestial bodies, you should also be aware God is there. Whether that's true on the moon or Mars or anywhere, God is equally there. He fills the entirety of the cosmos equally at the same time. He fills it, fills it, fills it. That's eminence, filling that which he has made. Now, in Jeremiah 23, God said, look, that's the way I work. Now, people don't necessarily understand it or like it, but God says, look, that's the way it is. Jeremiah 23, God says this question. He says, look, am I a God at hand and not a God just far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I can't see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? God is equally present at all times and all places. He is eminent every bit as much as he is transcendent. And that's a good thing and a comforting thing. Let's see why that's comforting. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, if I were to say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. You know, we dealt with this earlier this spring, but one of the most famous stories in all the Bible is the story of Jonah and the whale, or the great fish. Now, as we discussed earlier this spring, God had told Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Nineveh was not a place that Jonah wanted to go. Jonah had no interest in doing this. He hated Nineveh, and he hated the Ninevites. And he didn't get it, and he didn't understand it, and he didn't like it. So instead of going to Nineveh, as we recall, he went somewhere else. It's almost like he picked up a map of the then existing world and picked a location which was the furthest away from Nineveh. In fact, what he hoped was the furthest away from the presence of God, and that was a little place called Tarshish, out across the ocean, so to speak. And so he got on a boat with the idea that he was going to go there. And chapter 1 of Jonah says that his intention was not just to go to Tarshish because he liked you know, the cuisine there. His intention to go to Tarshish was to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, can you do that? I mean, is that possible? Well, I hope we're establishing that the answer is no. You know, Jonah, just like the pagans, remember, a lot of bad pagan beliefs had filtered in to some of the Old Testament believers, or at least some of the Old Testament kings and, and leaders and the like. Well, one of the ideas from paganism was this idea that you could get further away from God. Like an AM radio signal, the further you travel, kind of the weaker it gets until you're just outside of range. Well, that could have been what Jonah was doing, but if that was his intention, he should have known better because it doesn't work that way. And God demonstrated it didn't work that way by waiting until he was in the middle of the water, which for all the pagans was outside of the jurisdiction of the land gods to be out in the water. So God waits until he's way out in the water. And as you remember, God brings up a storm and ultimately Jonah is thrown into the water, which typified God's wrath. Jonah was sacrificed to the water in order to save the people on the boat. Now at that moment, even though he'd been trying to run from God, at that moment, his appreciation for God's presence returned. Why? Because he found himself in the water with no hope, no future, no ability to save himself. In that moment, he called out. He called out to God and desired God's presence. The man who had been fleeing from God now desperately wanted God. And he said this in chapter 2. He says, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. 
You cast me into the deep, into the hearts of the seas. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. This is a picture of a man who's so far gone that there's not another person on the face of the earth who could hear him, hear his cry. And yet, the chapter closes with this idea, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. As we know, the Lord was there. There's going to be times when we're ashamed or embarrassed in life. There's times when we've done things to people or to our loved ones or we've committed sins or crimes or done all manner of things that the world frowns upon. And our presumption, rightly so, is that God frowns upon those actions too, which is correct. And yet, out of a sense of embarrassment over what we've done and out of a desire to hide it from God or at least to keep it outside the walls of the church and not have to name what we've done, we run from Him. We stay out of church. We don't pray. We don't pick up the Bible. It's because we're conflicted. There's times when we try to run from God and keep it at arm's length. Can you relate? On the other hand, there's times when we recognize that we desperately need Him. There's times when God allows us to come to the end of our own strength, puts us in circumstances that are so bad and so unpleasant, so painful, that we have no option except to call out to Him. Circumstances that we can't fix. And it's in those moments that we're most inclined to turn to Him. Well, whether you're turning away from Him as Jonah was at one point, or turning to him as he was in the waters, whether you're turning away from him in your own walk, or whether you're turning to him because you're hurting, in either case, he's there. If you try to run from God, you can't outrun him. He's present in any place you're going to go. At the same time, if you're hurting and in pain, you cry out to him, he's right there. You do not have to do the smoke signals, and you don't have to earn his attention. Jonah had done the opposite of earning God's attention. And yet when he cried out to God, God was there. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. All right, let's look at verses 13 through 16. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. That my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none. You know, as I've shared before, because I've preached on that passage at other intervals, just before my daughter was born, my wife and I had an opportunity that many of you are familiar with, and that was to observe kind of the prenatal sonogram up on the big screen there in the hospital room. Now, this technology had evidently advanced pretty fast between the four-year gap between my son was born and when my daughter was born. But there in this room, instead of seeing it on the little thing, remember they hand you the little thing that you frame, the little picture of the sonogram? Well, instead of just seeing that as I had when my son was born, we saw this big blown-up thing on the big screen there in the hospital room, and we saw it live. We saw the heart beating, all these things going on, little tiny fingers and toes kind of moving imperceptibly and the like. And when I saw that, as one already committed to ministry, I didn't see a cosmic accident. I didn't see a great cosmic coincidence. I didn't see chance. I saw what Psalm 139 sees, and that is the hand of a divine craftsman. At this moment, I realized something I already knew, but I realized it in a way that it sank in deeper than it ever sunk in before, that God is busy even in the darkest places, even in the tiniest places, even the most tender places that he's busy. He is at work forming and fashioning, even in a place where human eyes cannot otherwise see. You formed my inward parts, is what we see in verses 13 through 15. 
Now, other translations of this verse say that God has knitted us. He's knitted us together. Knits together our parts as a master weaver might do. Now, I'm inclined to want to teach on the sanctity of life as we look at this text. But to return to the idea of God's omnipresence, what does that have to do with God's omnipresence? How does the talk of a mother's womb tie in in Psalm 139 with everything the author had just been talking about? Well, if you think about it, the psalmist, he had been making the point that God's everywhere. I can't go to the mountains or the depths of the sea and not have you there. So he's been making the case that God is everywhere. God's feet straddle Jupiter as well as Earth. God straddles the cosmos. He is God of the macro, God of the big picture. But then here in these verses, 13 through 16, David says, but... As important and wonderful it is that God is the God of the macro, that he's God of the whole universe, you should also know this, that he's God of the small, the micro, God of the tender, God at work in places that no human eye will ever see. And nothing, nothing describes that better than the idea that God is at work, knitting and forming and fashioning people created in his own image together in the womb. For all his might, for all his power, he is also engaged with that which is tiny, with that which is small. And that has good implications for us. Because sometimes we realize that, hey, we're tiny, that we are small. You know, sometimes when we pray, we can realize how tiny we are in the greater scheme of things and wonder why God should ever be attentive to us. Why would God answer my prayer? I've been a sinner. I haven't done right. I've done all manner of things wrong. Why would he care? Why would he care enough to answer me now, given what I've done and who I've been and the fact that I'm really insignificant in the big picture, why should he care? Well, here's the thing. We know this. He does care. He does care. The why, that's up to him. It's part of his nature. He cares because he cares. He cares because he's loving. He cares because he's patient. He cares because he's merciful. He cares because God is love, and that's why he loves you and I. So he cares because of his own nature. But with that said, his care is in the big picture and in the small, and there's nothing too small for him to care about. Whatever you are praying to him about, it might seem small. Even if you were to share it with your friends, they might say, what? That's no big deal. But if it's important to you, it's important to him. And he doesn't trivialize the things that are on our hearts. When we're scared about something that's going wrong in our body, when it's kind of embarrassing to even mention anyone else, and we don't even know if we should go and see the doctor, well, here's the thing. God cares. You can bring that to him, and he's not inattentive. He cares about the small. He cares when a little child prays in the dark. He cares when a wayward prophet prays from under the waters. God cares when the psalmist prays, even though the psalmist, King David, had sinned in ways that were so egregious as to cause the downfall and the division of his own kingdom. God still listened and still cared and still loved. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God cares. And you're not too small and your concerns are not too small that he is inattentive to them and doesn't desire to come alongside you if you'll but reach out your hand. He will ever surely grasp it. That's what we see in this text and elsewhere. All right, let's look at our final verses, verses 17 and 18. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. So our thoughts matter to him, but God's thoughts should also matter to us. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they'd be more number than the sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. You know, if you live long enough, you'll encounter a lot of different changes. Some of these changes are for the good. 
There are some changes in life that are positive. However, there are other changes that are not so good. There are other changes that are terrible. There are other things that will happen to us, about us, near us, with us, that we do not want, we do not desire, and we can't change. We can't take back. Are there things that have changed in your life for the worse? If you live long enough, all manner of things will change. If you live long enough, you'll outlive many of the people that were closest to you. If you live long enough, you'll watch others drift away through the passage of time and circumstances. If you live long enough, all manner of things, places, people, events, circumstances will change in ways that you don't like, in ways that you don't want. If you live long enough, the list of what you've lost will outweigh that which you have kept. With that said, in the midst of all that change, there's one constant, just one, really. There's one constant, and that constant is that the same God who formed you in the womb has been with you, even if you've not recognized it, every day of your life, and he's with you even still. Tonight when you pray before bed, if you don't pray before bed, start. But tonight when you pray before bed, guess what? The same God that you prayed to tonight, you will awaken to tomorrow morning. And that's what we see there in, in verse 18. When I wake, I'm still with you. There's a constancy to our relationship, O oh God. You're not going to have this whim overnight to dismiss me or dislike me or put me at arm's length. It'll never happen. It can't happen. Why? Because you don't change. You don't have whims the way that we do. You know, for all the losses and the changes going on in your life, the one constant you can set your watch to is that God is with you. And that won't change tomorrow, even if you do something where you seem to stray from his word or from his law. God was with Jonah out on the ship. God was with Jonah under the waters. God is always with his people. There's more examples of this than I have time to cite as we close you this morning, but a few of them. When you have Joshua, remember Moses died just to prove that the people didn't need Moses. They had God. So after Moses dies, God raises up Joshua to lead them. And then God tells Joshua that, yeah, it's a big task because they're going to be departing into the promised land. They're going to cross the Jordan into the promised land. Jordan's a younger guy. He's not Moses, and so he's anxious. And God tells Joshua this. He says, be strong. Be courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Not just here, and not just today, but wherever you go on through the days ahead. When Israel later on, when they would grow anxious during the prophet Isaiah's ministry, God told them, he says, fear not, for I'm with you. Remember King David? God being with him through the valley of the shadow of death is good. Well, here God tells Isaiah and his people, fear not, for I'm with you. Don't be dismayed. I'm your God. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Even Jesus you remember in Matthew 28, the very end, so this is Jesus, he's died, he's been resurrected, he's about to ascend into heaven, and of course his disciples, they're always anxious about the idea of him not being right there with them, and he says, look, I will be with you. He says this at the end of the Great Commission, he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God is always with us. It won't change. It's constant. It'll be true tomorrow no matter what you do today. God is with us. That's what Emmanuel means. 
All the pagan gods did their things out on the cosmos or on Mount Olympus or what have you. We are given Jesus, Emmanuel, which translated means God is with us. One more text. Paul said this to encourage the people in Romans chapter 8. He says, look, nothing will ever, nothing, nothing will ever break the constant bond you have with your God. He says, neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present or things to come, neither height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the thing. God isn't just with you because he has to be. God's with you because he wants to be. God isn't just with you because he has to be by virtue of his nature and it's just in his character to be everywhere. He's also with you because he really, really wants to be. You know, when God first formed Adam and he set Adam loose in the garden, there's this picture of how God then acted. Instead of watching Adam and Eve and our first parents in the garden from afar, instead we see that God came down in the person of Jesus Christ and walked with him in the cool of the afternoon through the garden. God didn't just form the cosmos, spin it like a top, stand back to see what would happen. Rather, he formed our first parents, he formed you, he formed me, and he entered into their lives and into their pain. God isn't just with you because he has to be. God is with you because he wants to be. And there's nothing, nothing that will ever change that, and there's no force on earth that can ever rip you from his hands. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.